0: The following content is sponsored in partnership with Haymarket Media U.S.
1: From Can Lions 2023, it's Campaign U.S. in partnership with Assembly. Hi, I'm Alison Weisbrot. I am the editor of Campaign U.S. And I am here with James Townsend, Global CEO, Stagwell Brand Performance Network and Global CEO of Assembly.
2: Hi, Alison. Good to be here.
1: Hello. And I also have with me Hannes Ben, CEO of Locaria. We're going to talk about how to avoid performative advocacy, which I think is a huge and important topic as brands get more into the purpose work and space. So new research from the Harris Poll shows that 68% of respondents worry that when companies speak out, it is a marketing ploy. And 60% insist that a company speaking out must be living the same values. 71% of Americans believe a company's history on social values are important. So... As more and more consumers seek out brands that match their values and they commit to those values with commitments to social, political, or environmental justice, advocacy can very easily be deemed performative. We're going to talk about steps that brands can take to avoid that. And we're also going to talk about ACT, which is Assembly's newest tech innovation. It is. In the space. So, James, what is performative advocacy?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I think, you know, as you said, there was a lot of talk coming into Cannes around purpose being one of the kind of key trends for the award season and so on. I think it probably hasn't been quite the case, but certainly I think um, purpose or purpose-led marketing clearly has been the big topic for the last three to five years, you could argue. I think we're probably moving somewhat beyond that now. Uh, and that's where probably advocacy and performative advocacy might be the new definition or an emerging definition. Um, I think it's always been an important part of any brand strategy, obviously, to present an authentic narrative, something you have a right to talk about. I think with the, the, the scale and speed by which messages can travel in a digital world, you know, getting that right or wrong has a massive, massive potential impact to, to the good or to the bad, as, a, as, a, as the case may be. So advocacy, well, what is it? It's, it's some form of activism. It's some form of position um, that you're going to get behind as a brand or a business to really, you know, uh, hopefully uh, support authentically and with integrity, um, but also with perhaps an agenda to, you know, connect with a consumer and an audience that. Share that feeling and desire and attraction to that particular issue. What's performative advocacy? Well, it would be attaching yourself to something without any right to do so. Um, it's a very, very delicate area. There's been a number of cases over the last sort of two or three years that have really, really either given brands fantastic fuel. You know, looking at you know the performance of like a, a Patagonia. Uh, as a business, for an example, Um, or some others that haven't sort of fared so well when they've been deemed to be connecting themselves to a group or a movement or a a conversation that they maybe don't have a right to attach themselves to. So advocacy, positive activism, performance of accuracy, sort of cosmetic activism, maybe.
1: Yeah. So how are how do you spot that? Is it just sort of like saying something without backing it up with action? Like how are you able to yeah. See that.
2: I mean, certainly from an assembly perspective in our North American business, you know, we're a D to C you know, B to C business. Um uh, B2C business, but really we have a large political practice and much of that is around measurement, much of that is about messaging measurement and looking at what competitors are, are doing in both what they're talking about and also the spends and the investments they're making behind that. Um, so we have created a technology called ACT, you know, advocacy consulting technology, which allows us to track competitor messaging, which allows us to track competitor spend, which you know on one level presents blue space, it allows you to see where you are and where your competitors are and where you might want to step into. Um, That in itself is hopefully helping brands and businesses make more conscious decisions about what they're gonna move into. Of course, that in isolation is not the full task, right? brand strategy has to then step in and say do we have a right to talk about this are we in a position where we have an authentic story and a story that says we can point at our heritage point at our positioning and really truly talk about that subject and act on that subject and be a contributor to that particular area in a way that consumers can really really buy into and they will find out they will look behind the label in a digital world and i think they will call you out as we've seen many times if it's deemed to be something that isn't like a true calling for that particular Brand or business.
1: Yeah. So, Hannes, um, James sort of just alluded to, you know, brands being called out. Uh, what are the dangers of performative advocacy and why do consumers care now more than ever about that?
0: They are sensitive issues, and they're not sensitive issues in an isolated case, just in one region or one part of the world. They are actually resonating negatively across the whole world. That means you have those immense masses of people from all parts of life, from all cultures, especially if you're a global brand. It's very, very difficult to rectify in a very quick way. So the only thing you can do in that, there's some things you can do quickly, such as obviously pulling the ad, apologizing, apologizing also to the influence of the celebrities are involved in that, but that alone won't fix that. You really need to go in and come up with a strategy which shows commitment to fix that on an ongoing basis, something which is aligned with the cultural values for each market and each language worldwide. And if you do it over a certain period of time, you will get back to actually rectifying this issue and kind
2: of committing on a long-term basis. I think think it's exactly right. And I think Hannes makes the point around the immediate impact and the, the scale And the extremism and the passion that you see coming out of consumers when a brand gets this wrong is something that absolutely hits the immediate short term. Uh, And we've seen that in a number of examples in a number of sectors lately. I do think the other issue is essentially isolation over a longer period of time, as you said, Hannes. Like isolating an entire audience, culture, demographic, um, you you know, gender. If you get this wrong, you know, you're going to be in a position where you have to earn that trust back and that's going to take a huge amount of time and investment. Um, And isolation, I think, of both the left and the right political sense, or the liberal and the more conservative uh, groups, certainly across America, is a massive question for brands and a massive question for populist brands, certainly, and not isolating that. Either of those groups is going to be really, really important.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we're seeing that play out before our eyes in the US right now, right? Um, There's a lot of conversation about backtracking on your values and uh, you could end up alienating both sides and likely will if you do that. That's right. That's right. So, James, Tell us a little bit about Assembly's advocacy consulting technology. How does it work, and how does it sort of help brands navigate this space?
2: Yeah, I mean, much of it's analysis based, so it's much about, it's looking at messaging out in the market. It's a it's about not only looking at messaging, but also spend and investment. And in terms of where that spend and investment is, and with which audiences. So much of that is some form of a competitor analysis tool, which, as I said, allows you to map where you are and where you aren't in pertaining to your your um, your competitors. It's also looking at consumer sentiment. It's also looking at social uh, social in terms of what are your customers and what are your potential customers that you might be looking to attract, um, leaning in on. So capturing um, ascending zeitgeist, capturing trends that are starting to become part of the conversation. And I think part of this is some of these are deliberate choices by brands, like we want to attach ourselves to a subject that might bring in a certain audience, but some of this is some going to be forced upon them. So having a conscious, deliberate, as much foresight, or as much information as you can, so that should your consumers demand a position from you. On a subject of any given nature that might be sensitive, are you equipping yourself with clarity of what your competitors are doing, what your consumers are saying, and how will that inform your ultimate decision around what position you're going to take? Be that a neutral position, um, an affirmative position, or a position that actually rejects whatever the, the particular subject might be, or pushes against that position.
1: Yeah. Are you? Do you have clients using it, and are they finding success?
2: Yeah. I mean, we use it across our, our whole political practice. That was the sort of... That was the genesis of this. Um, we're working with one of the biggest tech companies in the world. Um, certainly a populist business that needs to make sure that they're appealing to everybody, but also a business that totally understands the importance of, you know, trust has become a, has uh, never been more important. It's never been harder earned. And I think it's probably fair to say that consumers are cynical, consumers are concerned, and consumers are really looking to make sure that there is a truth behind what you're saying and most importantly doing.
1: Yeah. Um- Assembly does a lot of work in the advocacy and political space, as you've mentioned. And this is something we alluded to already. But how can brands, especially conservative brands, get involved in advocacy campaigns without alienating their consumer base? You know, for example, Cracker Barrel has been chastised for being woke, for introducing Beyond Meat to their menu, as well as sharing LGBTQ-friendly language on their website. We've seen this with Target. We've seen this with Bud Light. It's not just the LGBT community. It's all types of issues. How do they navigate that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, advocacy is taking a position on an issue. Um, so that's something that's, you know, open to all. And so this comes back to the point, I think, that Hannes made, which is being deliberate about the position you're taking and really understanding. And I think increasingly involving and asking your customers before you take an action um, is something that we would, be, we would be kind of encouraging. Because certainly we expect um, consumers to demand um, brands and businesses to take positions more and more on certain issues. Um, I think, yeah, being informed and actually asking the consumer base to make sure that your core doesn't, you know, bristle at the position you're going to take. And they have made, you know, they've invested a lot in your brand and you've invested a lot in them and that relationship is sacrosanct. So being able to do something deliberately and knowing as much as you can, that they will lean into your position, whatever that might be, on whatever subject that might be, is, is imperative. I think uh, to avoid some of the brands you described, um, troubles that they've had over the previous previous six to twelve. Because I do think hindsight's twenty twenty, and I have more empathy with those brands than maybe some of the market. Um, but I also think it's therefore the duty of those businesses and others to really be as informed as they can be when they go out there with a position or put in a position where they have to take one.
1: Yeah. Hannes, I'm curious how you would answer that question. Maybe I'll frame it more broadly. Um, both conservative and historically liberal brands, um, how can they approach advocacy in the rest of the world? Because, you know, in the US, there's very clear left and right. Many countries have that, others don't. You have a lot of ex- global experience.
0: It's really difficult in a in a short, succinct speech, to do that for the rest of the world, it's quite often comes all the big views, all the discussions you get about form and accuracy are quite centered in the US at the moment, they do happen worldwide, but because the understanding of certain issues, especially about LGBTQI, per regions differs so much, you have to really use a bottom-up approach in understanding the issue and then attack it as well, so if you take your understanding and your approach, which you have as a brand in the US, and to try to apply that, just in a translated approach in another market, you won't succeed with your campaign. You need to go in really locally, understand with pressure groups and conversations you have with local experts how something would work at that level, and then build your campaigns up from that one. If you do that, and as a global brand, you can go ahead and compare those local campaigns globally to align on the brand guidelines, but you really have to stick to that initial research. Otherwise, it's going to lead to cultural interference and cultural interference where somebody senses something from another region leads to a long-term impact, which is very difficult to rectify at a later stage.
1: That sort of brings me to my next question, which is like, what if something that you're advocating for in one country contradicts with something you're doing in another country as a global brand?
0: This is where the bottom-up the bottom, the bottom up approach should make sure that that doesn't happen, because you've started with the research first on a local level, and you kind of only align later with the global one, but it doesn't mean you apply it straight away. Now, if a brand made that mistake, and it happens for a lot of global brands, you need to quickly associate those with local group in those markets or charities or in the LGBTQI community Really, groups which understand how to react it quickly in the right audience. Political setups are very different in markets Absolutely right. from region to region. You don't have the system like in the U.S. with only conservatives and representatives. You have many different parties in some com- in some regions, especially in Asia, where in some countries it's actually only one parties in other they have a setup like here, similar to Japan. In those specific cases, just start with a speech and understanding of how the people set everything up locally. And then as a global brand, align it at a later stage. If it happened, you just need to work your way back and show
2: respect from a cultural perspective throughout. I mean, I think the point you're making and the the question is a great one, because if you're a global business, it's very hard to consider a campaign to be purely local because virality and the ability for digital to kind of spread. Uh, not only just the the action you're taking, or the position you're taking, or the campaign you're putting out there, but you, also the reaction is going to get seen, and the reaction is going to then be, you know, commented on to the good or to the bad, as I've said before. So, I think it is an, is a caution. Uh, it's very difficult and a tight rope to, to, to tread as a global brand around local campaigns and global campaigns because if you seem to be a hypocrite or a contradictory, you find yourself in a difficult position with one or both of your audiences. I think we really have to m- remove almost the term global when we
0: think about the different cultures. World. It doesn't exist. The global term in itself has to go. You have your US strategy, how you attack it. You have your, not even the European strategies, the German strategy, the Spanish strategy. They are at very different stages in understanding events such as pride, for instance. In the European region, you could take the... Madrid Pride as really the leading Pride and all the other Pride events actually across the European region very much built on that because it's so respected that well. In the Middle East you have Tel Aviv being the leading Pride and people have opposite Middle East being knowingly very complex. Tel Aviv is absolutely leading and arguably at the same level in understanding it as Madrid. In South America you have Sao Paulo which is by far the largest Pride event worldwide. You can really in Latin America follow what they are doing and then amplify it across the other countries, help them to achieve the same level. And even in Asia, you do have the Taipei Pride, for instance, in Taiwan, which is incredibly popular worldwide. So the other region, which are still fighting some of the societal issues, and sometimes for legal reasons, cannot really do what they want to do. They can see what's happening there. They get the attention from the Taiwan Taipei Pride, and that can then work for the other nations to improve, even though it's so hard due to legal reasons. You brought up
1: something important, which is legal reasons, right? Like, In some countries, we're talking about pride. It's not legal to be gay. Um, How do you come out as a brand in support of pride and then try to sell your product and comply with local laws in a country like that?
0: So, first of all, there are overarching principles such as um, human rights, such as Mm -hmm. equality and inclusivity. Those are always important as a brand, doesn't matter where you are anywhere in the world. You can uphold them and you should uphold them. When you come out with a campaign in that market to the outside world, outside your company, you're going to have to... Kind of adapt certain local nuances to make it work so that it's also accepted from a legal perspective. However, internally for employees, you can have and you should have policies in place, the, which are for non-discrimination, which are for equality, because the interesting thing is people in all of those markets come to work for you for a global brand because they enjoy exactly that. Mm-hmm. Internally, you can maintain that and you should do that because this is what gives you the growth in those in those regions we are talking about, you have more and more young people, and they're going to listen to that. They're going to help you grow. It doesn't matter what the legal aspect holds you back a little bit. And the pride event, like I said before, you have to identify as a brand in your region, what is that legal pride event, see how they have done it,
2: and try then build on that. And step by steps, people will pick that up. I think there's also, I mean, this is a podcast about advocacy and performative advocacy and navigating between the two or making sure you end up on the right side of that, being an advocate, being active, um, walking the talk, as it were. However, there is also um, power in strategic decisions that mean we are not going to do something. You know, and we're not, we don't feel that we do have a right to have this conversation. And that's okay too. And there's more credibility in not attempting to attach yourself to something. That is where you can end up as performative, I think, which is feeling the need to align yourself with a community, a particular social group, or, or an agenda or a subject matter that's in the, in the zeitgeist. Actually, not engaging is also a choice, and it's an important strategic choice, actually. Uh, and it's tempting sometimes to feel like doing something is, is, is you know what we're here to do. Be active, be a marketeer, go and connect yourself, go and communicate. Actually, sometimes no is a pretty good pretty good strategic move. And on this aspect of performative advocacy,
0: we speak about, it's a very different danger in each country and region worldwide as well, because in the US people react very, very quickly. But in some other regions, even though the societal issue is large, sometimes people take a little bit longer to react to that. So it starts with very different problems sometimes. So you have to understand actually that the term performative advocacy, how is it understood in Asia, it has a very different perception and people don't think about brands immediately in a performative advocate way.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of brands, to your point, James, they try to be all things to all people and they feel the need to jump on bandwagons and, you know, they see one brand doing something and they think, oh, we have to do that too. In what ways can brands like find an authentic cause to align on? Um, how can they find, like, where do they look into internally to bake that into their culture and therefore make it authentic?
2: Yeah, I think think in that respect, you have to look back to look forward, you know, where did your business begin? What were the founders principles? If you look at Unilever, it was about giving affordable nutrition to working people, you know, that's where Unilever began. So their ability to then project that forward and be a positive contributor to nutrition, and then try and make that more sustainable over time from an environmental perspective, you know, those are some of the things that you can look at. So I think it's all about looking at the kind of core principles of your business, sometimes at the very beginning, um, and making sure that there's a kind of clean red line between what you were, what you are, and what you'd like to become. And I think some of that can be implicit, and some of that can be very explicit. I think increasingly, though, consumers are going to expect um, action um, as you've seen to good effect with businesses like, um, you know, to, to Patagonia is the best example, um, where they 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 do take a position, but then they definitely deliver on it. They, they push through and they make business decisions that sometimes harm. harm harm their short-term bottom line. Um, the Guardian in the UK recently stopped taking gambling, gambling advertising. That is a material hit to their business, but will absolutely demonstrate to their core audience that they have a clear commitment to a certain point of view in life. You know, that, that's, that's a core principle playing out um, in, in real time and, and, and going forward. So authentic to your past, authentic to your core, authentic to your roots. I think the word authenticity is so important in general. It's authenticity and connections,
0: really, what you mentioned before, Alison, because I think really in this time and age, especially Gen Z and millennials, they really try to identify what the true authenticity is. And it means that a brand has shared beliefs and shared values for something like sustainability. Because... Young people want to know that the brand commits to that, commits to that, and they can actually follow this trend system as well. They know that they can be there, they can support it. They feel like I have a sense of responsibility as a millennial to be there. And how can I follow my commitments if a brand I really love doesn't follow those ones as well? Mm.
1: So we're here in Cannes. What are some examples of work that you've seen that really nail authentic advocacy on the head? And have you seen anything that sort of Prickled your spidey senses that this might be performative advocacy.
2: Um, I, I, won't, I won't poke at any examples sort of, uh, to, <laughs> to, to, to my, my poor colleagues. But what I would say, it's been interesting this year, I think coming into the festival, there was a lot of conversation around the most awarded work was going to be sort of purpose-led work. And I don't think that's quite been the case. But what I would say is that it seems like the can writ large has decided the efficacy is absolutely key in awarding winning work. So effectiveness, uh, and I think, you know, cause and effect, um, making sure that it did what it was trying to achieve, has actually meant that the kind of profile of the type of work has actually become more credible. So I think any purpose-driven work that's won this year has also taken the business forward, which means there's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of being able to do more of that, the business having more confidence to do more of that. So I think that, yeah, you know, commend sort of the can um, for for placing efficacy right at the start and the core of the judging criteria, because I think it's meant that the work, therefore, um, has to demonstrate that there isn't something that's more cosmetic and maybe does fall into that position of less less, less authentic works based on the brand and maybe more kind of creatively led but not connected to the brand, not connected to the business. Um, that's more credible creativity to me.
0: I mean, it's interesting because it's, it's true. We are here in Cannes, but you talk about sustainability. Um, it's obviously there are... As, No brand is perfect. No agency is perfect. As you say, simply, they have campaigns in place to support LGBTQI, they have campaigns which support sustainability. Um, We are here in Cannes probably spending money. There were talks with clean energy as well, several ones on the beach. But it's just you show up, you do something as a brand, you're there for the communities worldwide. And I think having a balance, having the right balance in place as a brand is really really important. Mm.
1: How do you, there's been a lot of pushback recently about Cannes in, in terms of the awarded work being too purpose driven and too advocacy focused. How can we tie the business thread back to advocacy work?
2: I think that's where the efficacy point comes comes to the fore, really. I think the fact that the, the judging criteria demands effectiveness to a higher degree than it has before means that you get two benefits. I think. I think it means if you're going to go into a campaign that does touch upon a certain social issue or does commit yourself to to solving a societal problem or demonstrating your sustainability credentials. I think the fact that there's now more of a performance, if I could put it that way, performance-based criteria to the work and how it wins, I think that means that fundamentally it's more credible work, more sustainable work. And Likely to be more insulating, I think, in terms of the brand not falling foul of performative um, advocacy because maybe it was sort of done with the wrong intentions, not a kind of sustainable, ongoing, long-term commitment to a story or to a commitment to a subject that the brand can talk about uh, and then and then demonstrate their activity within. What's going to be interesting following
0: Cannes, there's a lot of talk about it, but they're actually going to commit it on a long-term basis. Is it going to be a one-off thing where everybody talks about it and wants to be there again doing it just one time? because. It's almost performative in that particular case. Or are they going to really hold, uphold their values and do it on a long term basis? It's going to be interesting for everyone to watch what brands do afterwards, after CAN, after having spoken about that one. Is it going to be reflected in their work? Is it going to be reflected in how, how they work with brands on the agency side and then together do something better worldwide?
1: Well, I think we'll all be watching to see what brands do if they carry through their commitments after CAN. Thank you both so much for joining me. And, Thank you. Uh,
2: Have a good rest of your week. Alison, thanks a lot. Great to see you.